Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 3. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, this is on page 262. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. As it happened, one late afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is the word of the Lord. Still okay to say Happy New Year on the 15th, or is that kind of too late? That, that's fine. Uh, Lunar New Year's around the corner, so we'll be starting up our Second Samuel series again after taking a little break, going into Advent and having a couple of guest speakers. And as we go into Chapter 11 here, something you're going to notice about this chapter is it's not as much of a summary as previous chapters, like chapter 10. I know that was quite a while ago, but if you remember anything from chapter 10, a lot more summary-like and summarized. And so the author here is very intentional with these details that he's providing. And the writer of this book is deliberately slowing down the pace of this story and is, is taking some time to unpack this part of the story. It reminds me a lot about how my mother-in-law tells stories. I love my mother-in-law. I'm just sharing about how she tells stories. A lot of details. A lot. Just so much. And so after she tells this story, my wife and I can look at each other and we're like, I think I could have said that in a minute. And she's like, yeah, I think so. It's just a totally different pace, right? The way we tell stories. And, and so this is kind of what's happening from chapters 10 through 11, just this deliberate slowdown, this deliberate of telling more details. Uh, but even though there's this an intentional sharing and slowing, there are a lot of details in the story that aren't written about at all. Like, there's a lot to be filled in. Um, the first three verses were just read to us, so let me just go down to verse 4 and continue reading there. I'm just going to read through to verse 5. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So a lot is shared there, but a lot is left out, and I'm sure Bathsheba had way more to say than just these two words in Hebrew, I'm pregnant. No descriptions of feelings, no details of motives or intentions. A, a lot more shared about what happened, but there's so much left out of this too, and we're not sure why. We don't know how they felt. And we're given a lot about Uriah as well, but again, a lot is left out about Uriah. Don't really know if he had heard news from others like just rumors about his wife and David, 
don't know any of these sorts of things. And, and a lot is here, but a lot is also left out because it's not the primary purpose of the writer to get across to us as the audience. The writer's purpose is to share about David's initiative and David's responsibility in this matter. And we don't even get to know what God's take is on this until the very end of this chapter in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's the only bit of theology that we have in this chapter. Now you'll notice that in verses 1 through 5 starts out much like other chapters in 2 Samuel where the focus is on David. And in the last two chapters, there's this portrayal in chapters 9 and 10 that we just looked at. There's this portrayal of David's kindness, and we kind of focused on this Hebrew word chesed. And in chapter 9, it was David's kindness shown to Mephibosheth, right? a person of the covenant family who was a descendant of Saul, and this kindness was shown to him when historically a king would just wipe out the previous regime so there's, there's no threat to him. But he showed this chesed to Mephibosheth when historically that should not happen. And you look at David and you're like, that guy's a pretty good guy. What a kind person. And then you go to chapter 10 where we see David's kindness shown towards Hanan. And Hanan's an Ammonite. He's a pagan. So not only is David kind to those inside the covenant family, he's also kind to those outside of the covenant family. And you're looking at this guy and thinking, this guy's a really good guy. When he can just wipe out this Mephibosheth character, when he can just wipe out Hanan, you know, he's, he's not doing that. He's just showing chesed. He's a kind king in chapters 9 and 10. And something happens in chapter 11. He goes from this really gracious king to this very selfish king. And the scary thing about this is that this is all of us. We have this, these times of goodness and kindness and living in light in one moment and then the next we can be in darkness. And for those of us, you know, our, our stories aren't done. And maybe who you once were before or who you are now is not a guarantee of who you're going to be. And so this race that we're in is, is a marathon. It's, it's a long race. And just because you're running it well now and you're living with kindness and goodness doesn't guarantee that it continues. Keep in mind, this is the same David who wrote Psalm 19, verses 13 and 14. And he wrote this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not take dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And we are very familiar with verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's the same guy that did this in 2 Samuel 11. Same guy. And so the same thing can be said of us and something for us to keep in mind before we get self-righteous and start judging others and condemning others. Because this isn't just a David thing. This is a person thing. And if you all at all think you couldn't possibly do something like David did, you need to be careful. You need to be really careful. 
And maybe you justify how you can never do something even remotely close to what David did because, you know what, I I love the gospel. And I I devoutly follow Jesus and I religiously study the Bible and I practice spiritual disciplines and I'm a moral person. I would never. Be careful. Be careful. David wrote Psalm 19 and it's recorded for everyone to read. He also committed 2 Samuel 11, which is also for everyone to read. You don't really know about your future self that well, do you? And we don't know the future that we'll face. And maybe you're in in the middle of a problem now and you're doing things that you never thought you'd do. But the thing is, we don't know the circumstances we're going to face or the events or the opportunities, the conditions that bring us deeper into darkness and which one of those things is going to move us from light into darkness and you and I aren't that different from David. And what's dangerous is believing that you are. We can't be foolish into thinking that we aren't like David. You and I are are sinful people like David. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And that list of evil is completely possible coming out of you and me. That they are within us. And it's why we need to be so careful about casting judgment on others. Jesus also said in Matthew 7, starting in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And what David did is completely within the realm of possibility for you and for me. Do any of you remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? Yes or no? I mean, some of you might be younger. It's like 22 years ago. It's a Bruce Willis movie. It's over 20 years old, like I said. It's a good movie. I I really enjoyed it. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, But if you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin the ending for you. It's like you've had 20 years, right? I'm going to ruin it for you. And I'm not going to feel bad about it. What's the classic line from that movie that the kid says to Bruce Willis, who's the clinical child psychologist? What? what, I see dead people. That's what he says. That's... I think Nathan's like barely 20. He knows this. So. But this Willis character, he's trying to help this kid who's claiming he sees dead people. And he's trying to help this kid work through this issue of seeing dead people and seeing how, uh, how he's like intervening and interceding in their lives. And by the end of the movie, Bruce Willis realizes that he's dead. Dun, dun, dun. Like that's, I'm sorry, I ruined it for you. Like that's, that's the ruining thing. Yeah, I know. We'll watch it together if you like. And then, I, then you can look at me like, you ruined it. The thing is, he thinks he's alive during the whole movie. He thinks he's alive helping this kid. 
through the whole movie. He doesn't realize what, what's happening until the very end. And then that line, sees dead people, finally clicks with him. He's like, wait a minute. I'm dead. I didn't do any justice to the movie, by the way. You watch it. You'll get it. But what I'm trying to get to you is that you and I don't realize who we really are. And it might be really, really surprising. And it might be really, really scary to end up at this place that you thought you would never be. To find out that you are already dead. Like, it's just going to be shocking and, and awful. And it might surprise us when we end up in certain places. And even though Jesus has shared with us what is within, and we know what Mark says. And even though the story in 2 Samuel 11 shares with us what is possible, you and I might keep trying to justify certain things about ourselves, but just know that what is within and what is possible is out there for us. To know that we are not outside of manipulating our own thoughts and actions to justify what we believe is actually unholy, not of God, outside of God. And know that we are capable of practicing darkness, uncleanness, wickedness, unrighteousness. And know that we can't ignore boundaries and restraints that are placed by God. And since Adam and Eve, we've been looking to overstep those things. Know that we can defy every single commandment laid out for us that God has put in front of us and know that we are all capable of walking toward darkness and that is why we need Jesus. Oftentimes, we don't run to Jesus during these times of darkness. Rather, we try to start covering it up. And this is what David did with Uriah. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Then Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And the interesting thing here is in verse 7, the word shalom is used three times. Shalom, when translated from Hebrew, is often translated peace. And it's just interesting that David would use such a word knowing what he just did. But it can also be translated into welfare. So when we're looking at this, he's asking about the welfare of Joab, the welfare of the people, and how the war is going, right? So in other words, how, how are these people and how is the war doing? Verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the floor of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David's plan A doesn't work. He thought he'd you know, just cover it up. Uriah will sleep with his wife, and then we'll just say that the baby's his, and then that's it. I'll wash my hands of it. But it doesn't work. And so David's like, oh, man, I got to go to plan B. Plan A didn't work. Going to plan B. So he's still trying to cover things up. 
Here's something to notice, that even in the midst of the plan A cover-up, God is still the God who's gracious and looking to reach out to David, hoping that he's going to change. We'll take a closer look at verse 11 to unpack this. In verse 11, God uses Uriah in an attempt to turn David around. But David doesn't pick up on this. And it's not until chapter 12 where God uses the prophet Nathan to convict David of this sin. But most of the time, people are crediting Nathan for turning David around, which is true. But I think a lot of times they forget verse 11 here where God's grace appears to David through Uriah. That God uses Uriah to appeal to David's conscience but he does not recognize it. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't hear it. And what Uriah said should have brought some sort of conviction, some sort of shame to David for what he did, but it doesn't. And right in front of David was a person who was full of duty and loyalty and commitment and faith. And David was this adulterer, this homewrecker who disrespected, who dishonored Uriah And he should have been able to see just how treacherous he was and how honorable Uriah was. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. And God showed David this grace. He showed grace to David through Uriah, but David wasn't sensitive to the grace of God. And what was an opportunity for David to repent through Uriah's faithfulness was flipped for an opportunity for further evil through David's frustration of plan A not working. God provided an opportunity for David to see his own darkness, but he decides to go further into it. Before Nathan in chapter 12, God was trying to reach David in the darkness through Uriah's fidelity, even though David practiced infidelity. And as for you and me, We need to pray to God that we are sensitive enough to hear him speak to us before we delve further into darkness. That we can see the roadblocks of grace in front of us and not go deeper into evil by going around things and devising a plan B and a plan C when these other things are being blocked from us. That God puts these roadblocks of grace to stop us from going further away from him, and we need to be able to sense that so that we can turn around, so that we can repent. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So plan A doesn't work, plan B doesn't work, and now here it is, plan C, kill him. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there, was, where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. 
And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah Hittite is dead also. What a sneaky guy, huh? Trying to make it sound all concerning and everything, but really just wanting to hear this news. So the messenger went and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here's a question that a lot of people ask, and not just believers, but a lot of non-believers ask this question. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God get involved in evil like this? See, God did give a warning in verse 11, but why didn't God overtly intervene to stop David? Why did God allow something like this to happen? Why does God allow evil to happen? Why does God allow David to keep walking deeper into darkness? So why why does this happen in the world? Why does God let us go on in our evil ways? Why doesn't he prevent us from going further into darkness? We know God is to be so gracious and God is so wise and God is so righteous. There has to be a reason that he leaves us to our own foolishness, to our own temptations. But why? Why? To show that we are indeed guilty of our own sins and that it is completely just for God to judge us. Also, to reveal our own hidden, corrupt, deceitful hearts need of God and showing us that we do indeed need him. And so therefore, God sometimes leaves us to ourselves to test us and for us to see our own true heart. There's a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 that highlights this. It's about King Hezekiah. And when looking at King Hezekiah as a whole, you, you kind of look at him and say, like, he, he's not that bad. He's actually a guy, a guy who kind of reigned in a godly way and he, he kind of ruled righteously. But it's not without his hiccups because he has a major hiccup in that he makes this military alliance with the Babylonians, which is a big no-no. This is not supposed to happen. He was not supposed to do that. So Hezekiah was to lean on God and not just looking at the political climate and seeing that, you know, there's a threat from the Assyrians, and if I don't make nice an alliance with the Babylonians, there's a chance that the Assyrians are going to overtake us, so I, I need to align myself with them so that we're stronger and then they won't overtake us. But God clearly said, don't do that. But he does it anyway. So when we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, 
This is the summation of what happens here. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, this is the important piece, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. This is really scary when God leaves us to ourselves. What can we do about this theological truth that sometimes happens? One, you can complain about it. The second thing is you can pray desperately to God that this doesn't happen to you. There are other very few options outside of that, right? And I have to admit to you that I pray that second one really often. Because I'm very afraid of God leaving me to myself. This is very scary stuff. And I think there are many people who think that they are fine without God. And I think we are seeing what is truly in the heart of people and it's not good. And all you have to do is look at our world. You don't even have to look that far. Because you can look within people's own families and how they're getting along with siblings or parents or children or whatever it may be. You just have to look at your workplaces. You just have to look at your children's school. You just have to look at our city. And you can see what happens when God leaves us to ourselves. And what happened with Hezekiah is what happened with David, that God left him to himself. But then you have to think about a guy like Uriah. Like, what did Uriah do? That it seemed that God left him to himself too, and it, that seems really bad. That Uriah was killed. David at least ends up marrying Bathsheba and, and has a baby, and it doesn't seem like anything bad happens to him, and we don't notice this until the chapter later. But up until this point, you're just looking at this story and thinking like, Man, how is this guy getting away with all of this? And then this guy has to die for it. Why didn't God defend Uriah? And sadly, it's often what happens to God's people all around the world. It happens even in our own country. We just often get run over by others and God doesn't always overtly intervene on our behalf. And I'm not faulting God, I'm just pointing out what happens throughout the globe and I'll just point out even just something like Christian persecution that is so, it's talked about so little if not at all in our country. We have all these other issues that we want to raise but we don't talk about this particular one where thousands of Christians are butchered. Nigerian Christians gunned down by Boko Haram. Christians in Yemen are, are butchered by the Houthi movement. Levin persecute Christians in Pakistan. They, they kidnap Christian girls, forcing them to marry Muslim men and forcing them to convert to Islam. And so these abductions of Christian girls are happening in many parts of the Muslim world, especially in Pakistan and Egypt. Never talked about. 
In Somalia, Christians are killed by al-Shabaab. The Taliban killed Christians in Afghanistan. In, in Syria, it's the Tahir al-Sham persecuting Christians. The Wa army in Myanmar, it's all over the world. It's happening. Thousands upon thousands getting killed. And where's the justice? How many people even know about this stuff? And where's God's intervention? Where, where's the media coverage about these injustices? And we're busy talking about whatever else is out there, but we're not talking about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I read that to us because according to 1 Peter, two things are happening at the same time. We are carefully kept in verse 5, but then in verse 6, we are terribly exposed. And there's this mystery in the life of faith in this world, and one of those mysteries is when does God intervene? Didn't happen for Uriah. Mysterious. Puzzling. And the writer wants us to see David as a guilty man, possessed by evil, separated from God. And the writer wants us to feel this despair, this injustice that is happening. And that's why the writer of 2 Samuel 11 writes it this way. He wants us to feel this. He wants us to see this darkness and evil for our, our own good. For our own good. God wants us at a place near the cross with this trembling, fearful soul because then it prevents us from having a flippant, weak faith. To have a trembling faith that draws us to Jesus is not a bad faith to have at all. Lord Jesus, um, there are so many things that we're in desperate need of, and one of those things is just the pride within ourselves, thinking that we know the difference between good and evil. You've laid out many of those things before us, Lord, but also you've shared with us what is within our heart and what is in the realm of possibility even for a great psalmist and child of yours in David, and yet this happens. And so, Lord, I pray for humility in our church. I pray, Lord, that we are able to extend grace to one another, knowing that we have all these things within us, and sometimes they come out and, and we need to correct. We need to change. We need to be different and walk toward light. And so, God, in, in our imperfect church, in our imperfect communities, I ask that your grace would abound, that you would increase our faith, that we would not be so prideful, that we would be humble. Thank you, Lord, for these somber words in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, anyone who does not have communion elements, just please raise your hands and uh, we'll get that over to you.
that wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ. Hopefully through 2 Samuel 11, you realize that all of us need Jesus Christ, need what he has done for us to bring us in relationship to holy God. Let's take this together. The fruit of the vine symbolizing this blood of Christ, that extremely costly price of his life to bring us in relationship with God. We take this in his name. Lord Jesus, we remember your sacrifice. We await your return, knowing that we are in a fallen world as fallen people. Lord Jesus, come. Amen.